This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to both the Millennial Politics Podcast and the Brand New Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the folks at Brand New Congress. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And you're listening to our joint series on Venezuela. Today, I'm joined by Margaret Power, Illinois Institute of Technology professor and author of Right-Wing Women in Chile, Feminine Power and the Struggle Against Allende. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. So, could you contextualize what's happening in Venezuela right now with the history of right-wing politics in Latin America? I think what has been looked on a lot is the idea that there have been military coups. And I think for many people, the image of Latin America is, oh, that place where they have military coups, etc. But I think what we need to understand is how coups actually get organized. They don't just happen, they're organized. And they're organized both with right-wing forces within the countries, as well as as with massive backing by the United States, that is in the countries that the United States um, does not like, has, countries that have governments that the United States does not like. And I think probably the classic example is Chile, uh, which democratically elected the government of Salvador Allende in 1970. And then in 1973, the Chilean military with the backing of the United States overthrew through him. What is interesting to me is also the idea of building a mass public civic movement of people who will, in a sense, provide a cover, provide a facade of legitimacy, and also, most importantly, encourage the armed forces to act. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about how that happened in Chile. I should say my focus is on the uh, right, but it's specifically on, on the right women and gender. So I'm, what I've done in the book that you mentioned that I wrote is look at a gender discussion of how is it and why it is it that women were particularly active and vocal in their opposition to the government of Salvador Allende. Just so people know, the majority of women voted against the Allende government in the last democratically held elections in Chile. And actually, that's what got me interested in the subject, because in the United States, we've tended to think of women as being more progressive, and we haven't usually thought of, oh, women are out there rah-rahing in the streets. So, yeah, overthrow the government. Yeah, let's have a military dictatorship. But that is what happened in Chile. So that's why I got interested <laughs> in it. And basically what happened is the U.S. government was very fearful of Salvador Allende, a socialist, a Marxist, winning the elections in Chile. And beginning as early as 1964... The U.S. government, the CIA, worked directly with right-wing organizations, right-wing political parties, and right-wing women who were, of course, both in organizations and parties within Chile. And they developed a whole campaign, which in Spanish is called La Campaña de Terror, 
which some people translate as literally the terror campaign, but, but now because the word terrorist has developed this whole meaning associated with a specific type of person, I've used the word scare campaign, but one could use them somewhat interchangeably. The campaign realized that women in Chile were more conservative than men based on their voting record. So they said, let's particularly target women. So they said, how shall we target women? They said, we'll target women as wives and mothers. So the massive media campaign that was started, devised in part by the CIA, but also designed by the two largest U.S. ad agencies, J. Walter Thompson, McCann Erickson, in conjunction with the consulting with ad agencies in Chile and with right-wing women in Chile, as well as um, different political parties. Anyway, they basically said to these children, (laughs) these women, if Allende wins, your children will be taken from you. Your children will be taken from you and sent to Cuba. And in Cuba, they will become indoctrinated. They will see themselves not as your children, but as agents of the state whose role is to tell us, the state, in this, in this sense, the Allende government, what is going on within, within the household. And basically, it was very Orwellian in a sense of your children are no longer your children. And I think this was a very horrifying prospect for women in Chile. And part of the reason it was so horrifying was that their primary uh, identification within life was as being a wife and a mother. And that had to do with the fact that the vast majority of women, as in 80% of women in Chile, by the 19, early 1970s did not work outside the home. They worked, they worked within, inside the home for which they were not paid. As a result of this, most women were exposed to um, ideas about motherhood that were very traditional, very conservative. And I think one of the major faults of the Allende government was that it did not understand the importance of developing a gender politics or developing programs that specifically were geared to meet the needs, interests, of women. The Allende government had a very Marxist approach, and at that point in time, in the 1970s, the Marxist approach was the revolutionary figure, the revolutionary subject is the worker. And in Chile, the worker was gendered men, as male, gendered male, which meant that who we're targeting, who we're making our appeal to, who we're saying we're in power for, it is the male worker. And as I've said, women were not considered workers because the majority of women who did work outside the house did not work in factories. They worked as domestic servants, as maids in the homes of the wealthy or the or the upper class in Chile. So what this meant was that women, in a sense, were basically excluded from the um, from the immediate benefits. Which is not to say I should add as a little caveat. There were certainly women within the popular unity government, socialist women, communist women, left-wing women who said, we have got to develop programs for women. So towards the very end of the Allende government, they did develop um, collective daycare. They developed um, programs for women who were working where they could pick up meals so that they wouldn't have to work. 
So that happened, but was it was a case of too little and too late. So that's going on on the one hand. On the other hand, under President Nixon and with Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, they were dedicated to the idea that we could not possibly allow the socialist government to succeed. First of all, the fact that Allende was democratically elected in Chile just completely blew out of the water the whole idea that was, and this was very prominent during the Cold War, that the communists are totalitarian, the United States and capitalists are de democratic. So here you have a democratic election which chooses, the people of Chile choose to elect a Marxist. So that was like, ay, 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 how could this possibly happen? So, okay, it happened. The next thing we have to do is destroy it. So the Nixon administration basically policy, as he wrote, in, as, as President Nixon wrote in a note to the um, members discussing what to do about Chile, was make the economy scream. And this may sound familiar to um, people who are aware of what's going on today in terms of Venezuela. The idea was we have got to make people in Chile suffer so that they will say the problem is the government, the problem is socialism, we cannot continue. How did the U.S. government do it? Several ways. First of all, the U.S. government said we are cutting off all loans to Chile. And at that point in time, still today, but even more so then, the United States had major control of any international monetary organization, such as the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank. They also had direct control over different European lending organizations, and they, the United States exerted pressure over them not to lend a penny to Chile. Because Chile had been a dependent economy for 50-plus years, that meant Chile um, not only imported most of its products, industrialized products from the United States, it, it, it depended on things like spare parts for its tractors, for machines, Everything. The United States said blockade. We're blockading Chile. So nothing went into Chile. So as a result of this, you're not having any capital coming in. You're not having any spare parts or equipment coming in. So when things broke down, they could not be repaired. The third factor is the United States government. This is under Nixon. A Republican president said what we need to do basically, as I said, is stop the economy. So what we will do is we will basically encouraged truck drivers to go out on strike and to go out on strike specifically in during the Chilean spring, which is when seeds and fertilizer would be delivered to the countryside so that people could, go product, could, could grow products. And it was at precisely at that moment, truck drivers all over Chile went out on strike. And not only this, the United States government via the CIA paid the trucking, striking truck drivers doubled their normal salary to go out on strike, thus, in a sense, paralyzing the entire economy. Women's role in all this was also very critical. So what women did is women organized other women, especially upper-class women, middle-class women, but also lower-class women, organized other women to boycott in a sense, to boycott the government. They organized the first big foray into the public political scene was they organized a march called the March of the Empty Pots and Pans, in which women 
took their pots and pans, which some people said, referring to upper class women, we don't know if they've ever even used them. They usually have maids who use them. Nonetheless, they um, went into the streets banging them and said, the government has left us without any food. And there, in a sense, what this does was, what this did was creating this mass psychosis. There are shortages. There's not, there's not any food. And keep in mind, going back to what, this is in 1971. I, uh, sorry, I skipped something, which that Allende, elections were held then in 1970. Oh, I did say this, and Allende was elected. So then the whole idea was, um, let's go back to what happened in 1964, in which I said there was a scare, the scare campaign, and the idea was your children would be taken from you. Well, the exact same thing happened in the 1970 election. So women, in a sense, were primed to think their children would be taken from them, but only this time around, added to the media reports, and what, what the media reports were ads taken out in newspapers, and newspaper and radio announcers so they'd have these very dramatic announcers coming on opening with gunfire and a new and an ad would come on an announcer would come on and say your children are about to be taken from you or there are shortages uh and in a sense it created among women who as i said were primed to believe that the government was against them as mothers now you have shortages and the other reason you have shortages is the major agriculturalists, the major landowners stage a boycott. Not only did the truck drivers not get the goods that were needed to the countryside, the, the landowners refused to grow or they sabotaged, sabotaged their own crops. When I was there, um, actually I lived in Chile during the military dictatorship. I lived there about in 1976-1977 afterwards. And at that point in time, I wasn't an academic. I was a social activist, a political activist. I'd been in the Chile Solidarity Movement in the United States. So actually, I tried to avoid right-wing people as much as possible. But when I then went back to do my dissertation research, I was able to talk to t a lot. I think I interviewed something like 80 of these women activists, women, women leaders. One of them had been a working class woman who had supported, who had initially um, supported the military coup. Then her son, and as it turns out, had been in, on the left. Her son was arrested by the Pinochet dictatorship that overthrew Allende in 1973. He was then tortured, imprisoned, and sent into exile. So she did a political 180. She then began, began to hate the dictatorship because they had taken her, they, not the Allende government, they had taken her son away from her. So she was completely happy to talk to me. And what she told me about was what it was like working in a factory. And she worked in a shoemaking factory. And what she said is that the, when they, they would produce the shoes. But then the factory owner would take the shoes and literally just throw them away because the capitalist class in Chile was, I believe, one of the more sophisticated capitalist classes in the world. And what it determined was, it's better to lose this battle, but we are going to win the war. And by that they meant, okay, we will get rid. This year we may not make any profits whatsoever, but 
within one year or two years or three years, that government will be gone and we will come back into power. They also paid women workers to go to demonstrations against the Allende government. So there was this, they would, they would give money, for, give them money for taxes. They would give them money, organized buses to get them downtown for the demonstrations. So in short, what you had was this mass civic movement more mobilized, organized by different levels, but especially by women who said, we are going to, we're not going to allow this government to continue. And what other women told me, these are both working class women, especially, would say, we'd have to get up at five in the morning and go stand in line. Maybe, maybe we would be able to get food. If I ever heard there was food any place, I would just drop whatever I was doing and run and stand in line. So there, there were real shortages, but the shortages were created by the efforts of the United States government to blockade um, goods from going into Chile and by sabotage by those both in the agricultural and the industrial sector who were producing the goods. As you said, the U.S. believed that capitalism and democracy were one and the same, or at least the U.S. said that it believed that that socialism was a direct threat to capitalism and therefore democracy. Uh, what you're telling us is that Salvador Allende was democratically elected, was overthrown by a CIA-backed coup, and then Chile was overrun by a military dictatorship led by Pinochet. What exactly is the truth of the dynamic of democracy and capitalism. How have we actually seen that play out in Latin America? I don't actually believe you can have real democracy in a capitalist system because I think you have to have um, economic democracy as well. And just as we can see in this country, the amazing power of capital to influence elections, we can see to a very great extent the exact same thing in Chile. In, in Argentina, in, well, you name it, and throughout, Lat throughout Latin America. Because what it means, for example, in Chile, up until the uh, 19, 1950s, um, landowners would just round up all their, their employee, well, employees, well, employees, peasants, take them in a bus or bus or truck, probably a truck, to the voting booth and said, here's who you're supposed to vote for. This exact same thing happened in Mexico for with the, the pre-government in Mexico, that they would hold rallies the day before the elections, hand out alcohol, hand out 20 pesos, hand out shirts, and say, now go vote for us. And I think when you are in uh, an economy in which wealth is not more equitably distributed, then you inevitably create dependency um, among people who are lacking funds, or you create cynicism, or you create inertia because you see the same people winning and ruling year after year, and you have people then say, okay, here's the parliament, or here's the, the Congress, whatever it is in any particular country. Well, the people who are in power tend to be the people who have the financial resources both to finance a campaign and then to be in in Congress or Parliament to be the elected official and then they are able to pass the laws or not pass the laws 
that economically benefit them, that stage the kind of elections that they want. To me, what is remarkable about places like Chile, places like Venezuela, places like Mexico with the recent election is that you see people who are become so politicized that they understand exactly why they're poor and they see, they chose, they voluntarily chose socialism or a progressive alternative as a solution to their problems. So in short, I think what when you saw, it, it, this is not to say that if you had a true democracy, everybody would nat naturally choose socialism. But I think if you have a true democracy, why in the world would somebody choose capitalism? Because capitalism is based on, on inequality. Capitalism is based on the idea that there will always be poor people. And to be poor means that you are excluded from most of the basic things you need in order to survive as a human being. It, it's, it's, called, it's not just unequal, it's unfair. It's unjust. And I think you lose so much human potential. So many, so many things that we as humans can contribute to each other and to the world get lost when people, when people's growth is stunted due to lack of ac economic wherewithal. So in, in Chile, and in, I mean, you could say that every place in the world. I mean, I, I don't know as a human being why people wouldn't want um, to see all the um, people's people flower. And I know that sounds a little schmaltzy schmaltzy, but wouldn't you want people to be the very best they could be? And how can you be the best you could possibly be when you don't even know if you have uh, a place to live or food or you're sick and you don't have medical care. And what exactly has happened when these socialist governments were overthrown? What has capitalism meant for these countries? In Chile, um, it meant two things. Um, the early years, when I was living in Chile, there was massive terror. Uh, I, since I lived, since I knew Chilean political refugees, and I had been in the Chile Solidarity Movement, I was able to uh, hang out with people who were on the left in Chile, even during the dictatorship. So one of the things I did um, is I went to visit the political prisoners. And there were huge numbers of people who were imprisoned in Chile simply for their political beliefs, simply exclusively because they had voted for or worked for or were a member of the, the government, the Allende government, the popular unity government. That's it. That is what they were. They were imprisoned for their beliefs, in other words, which supposedly is, a, is something that democracy stands for. They were not only imprisoned, 90% of political prisoners in Chile who were uh, arrested were tortured. So when I went to visit these political prisoners, I knew every single one of them had probably been tortured. But even deeper than that, there was this sense that under the Allende government, I want to say a bit of what the, the socialist government or a government trying to be socialist meant. One of the things it did, and I know there are vegans out there, sorry about that, but what the Allende government did is said, because child malnutrition was so high in Chile, said we're going to make sure that every single child in Chile has at least a liter of milk a day. So that was of nutritious value. And cows were a lot healthier in Chile at that point than in the United States, too. There wasn't this mass farming. 
much healthier. They set up health clinics in poor neighborhoods. They, to me, I know sometimes we think, yeah, what about this? But to me, I think this is such a wonderful thing that workers were, they set up vacation camps for workers so workers could get a week off to go on vacation, which most working class people around the world in, in poor countries, I don't mean in Europe, I don't mean in Canada, but in many countries, the idea of going on a, a vacation where you don't have to cook, you don't, <laughs> especially for women, you have things set up so that there's um, um, classes or games for your kids. So you actually have a break. That's an amazing thing. So I want to say it wasn't I think it's it, it's um, the bread and the flour. So people not only got health care health care clinics, higher wages. They also got a vacation. Then I think what happened is all of that all of that was taken away from the working class. Instead, what began the I think many of us are familiar with the term neoliberalism, um, and Milton Friedman from University of Chicago in Chicago. I'm in Chicago, and what what happened was Chile, in a sense, became the guinea pig. It became the laboratory. It became where neoliberalism was actually started in the world under the Pinochet government. And in order to do that, the military government had to discipline, um, incarcerate, torture, murder, send into exile hundreds of thousands of Chileans. The most active political opposition had to be eliminated. So unions were smashed, unions were destroyed within Chile, government welfare programs were wiped out, anything that could be was privatized. So now many of us perhaps are particularly uh, admiring of Chilean wine. What happened is Chilean wine along with grapes began, began to be produced and there was this whole concept of called comparative advantage. We produce what sells the best, i.e. what makes the most money on the international market. So what that meant is two things. Farmland that had previously been devoted to growing crops for people in Chile now was devoted to growing grapes, other agricultural products, fruit, and then producing wine for export to people in, in the global north because of the 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 um the seasons are are the the inverse. So when we don't have grapes here, they have grapes there, etc. Which meant that huge numbers of people were literally literally starving. Uh, unemployment reached something like in in many of the poor neighborhoods of Santiago, un unemployment reached sixty percent. And so there were I would I would. I would literally see people begging little kids on the street. And in Chile, it does get cold in winter. In Chile, with maybe a little ragged sweater, sometimes even bare feet, they had nothing. So I think what capitalism means is one, uh, I mean, what capitalism and a military, what a military democracy, a military <laughs> dictatorship meant in Chile was one. And I think this is very serious if we think of what could happen if there's a coup in Venezuela, which may or may not take the same shape or form whatsoever because the military was opposed to Allende. That makes a huge difference. But Parliament was completely shut down. The writ of habeas corpus was eliminated. People were simply disappeared. The same exact same thing happened in, in Argentina where something like 30,000 people 
were disappeared. To disappeared means that they were arrested by the security forces and were never heard or heard of or seen seen again. And many, especially in Argentina's people's bodies, were just dropped in the ocean with concrete, so they sunk to the bottom. In Chile, under the Pinochet government, they um, buried people in mass graves. Or they were imprisoned. So this idea, there, there was complete censorship of, of the media, and there was an economic, I would call it economic disaster for the majority of the population. Gross inequality of wealth, redistribution of wealth upward, of course. So I think that's, I think it's not something that we should consider, that we should take lightly. It is very serious. It is why the whole history of U.S. intervention in Latin America, of U.S. supporting military coups or coups in, in Latin America has led to disastrous results. You could look at, at Guatemala with the um, overthrow of the Arbenz government in 1954 that then ushered in 30, 40 years of military dictatorships and, and mass slaughter of peasants and peasant communities, which, of course, is why... <laughs> you have the situation you're having now with immigrants trying to come into this country um, because of the repercussions. But I, I will leave it there because that's probably getting off on a whole different uh, area. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. I'd like to define some terminology. When you say global north and global south, what do those terms actually mean? I think for me, what I when I came, became political, it's what would have at that time meant the first world or the second world or the third war world, or for some people, it means the industrialized world or the industrial, uh, the developed world. I think basically what it means, and obviously it's a gross generalization, because if you take any single country in the so-called global north, you have global south, south within it. But basically the global north is the idea that you have a certain standard of living that you don't, that you have an industrialized economy, a modernized economy, a telecommunication center. Um, I think the whole, uh, yeah, basically that d democratic elections. In the media right now, if you look at US media, the sense you would get is that 
Maduro is a dictator starving his people and that this coup is supported by the people, it's constitutional. Given the history of the US supporting right-wing coups in Venezuela as well, how, how can we take that history, this history you've talked about in Chile, and apply it to what's happening now? And what is the truth about what's actually happening now? I think we can take the truth of anything this, the Trump administration says, with a grain of salt. The U.S. media, and of course there's plenty of alternative media in this country from which if a person listened, if a person listened to, they'd get a different point of view. I think that, um, I think that, that I don't really think we get a full picture. I don't think we get an actual picture. I think there are plenty of people who support Maduro. I think the question is how many people support Guido? Somebody who was basically an unknown until he proclaimed himself president? I mean, how can you say, <laughs> I, mean, I support the person who proclaimed himself president? This person, Maduro, was democratically elected. I'm, I'm sure there were some sh shenanigans in the election. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it's possible. It's maybe even likely there were. But the truth is he was democratically elected. But I think um, when we talk about it, hanging chads or we talk about this country, i.e. the United States, where the, the, per, the two people who win the popular vote aren't elected president, the person who lost the popular vote is elected president. I think, I think you're on a bit of a weak plank when you talk about democracy. The media in this country will by and large spin the line, the political line of the government in power. And that government in power is an overthrow of the Maduro government. Because the corporations run the media in this country, we have a corporate media. And I'm not talking about people like you, obviously. I'm not talking about, say, democracy now. I'm not talking about all the different alternatives, ones that exist. But I think if you have a media that are run by corporate corporations, then corporations, yes, they will support capitalism. So if they see a threat to capitalism, they will basically rally against it. And it's very easy to give a shots of rally. I'm sure there were shots of, you could, there were rallies of huh, tens of thousands, possibly people supporting Guaido. But then I think you wear the shots of those similar rallies of people supporting Maduro. I think what we have to say, baseline, the United States has no business whatsoever to intervene in Venezuela. The track record of U.S. intervention around the world is abysmal. There is not a single U.S. intervention. Okay, possibly World War II. There's not a single U.S. intervention that has been on the side of democracy. It's always been against democracy. Democracy is not what the United States government seeks, which doesn't mean there aren't individuals within the U.S. government who seek democracy. But as an institution, it seeks the perpetuation of capitalism. That's the bottom line. And capitalism in Venezuela has never meant good things for the majority of the people. A big question I think everyone's asking is, who exactly is Juan Guaido? And how did he come to power in the first place? Two things I think are against his 
being a unifying force. He's fairly unknown, which is why I think the U.S. media have done their best to trumpet him, to characterize him as a known, reliable, popular, trustworthy person, to, in a sense, to try and convince people in Venezuela, but also people around the world, that he is, he's the guy. But I think also what you have in, in Venezuela among the opposition to Maduro is a tremendous amount of people striving to be the next president, people striving to be the top dude. And I think it's going to be very hard for a lot of people who had this, those exact same aspirations to rally behind this relatively new un, unknown person. I think what's significant to me is that the you, the Venezuelan military has not really um, backed down in, in its support of Maduro. To me, what's equally interesting is that I heard sort of major news. One, three National Guard people defected and went over to the opposition. What about an interview with the 20 National Guard or the 100 National Guard or the 20 National Guard? Why don't we hear why they didn't? defect. I think that you have to say, aren't people curious about who, well, they have to know that they need to be curious. I think they have to know that there are, that the majority of the military is not going against Maduro. I mean, I think the other thing that I think is dangerous is that the United States has basically slapped a blockade or a boycott on Venezuela, except for the humanitarian aid. And that humanitarian aid that is currently on the border comes in with a very, very heavy price. In a sense, it's saying this, the price of this humanitarian aid is support for Guaido, basically. And that's, that's how you're getting it. It's in a sense, it's trying to buy people off. And the issue is when people are hungry, yes, people will say, yes, okay, I'll take the food. And I don't, I think that's under, I think the, it's the weapons of the strong, that this people who are strong have enormous power, that they are completely willing to yield in order to achieve the goals they want. And the goal in this case, which is, okay, I think probably one of the best things that could happen to the, I think one thing that would favor the Trump administration is if you actually did have mass starvation in Venezuela, because then I think that would help to crumble support for the Maduro government. It would allow the Trump administration to pro project itself as the international saviors of these of the these poor, starving people who are beleaguered by their nasty dictatorial government. But it hasn't happened. I'm not, I, I don't. Of course, I don't want it to happen. But I think that would be the kind of thing that an administration that was um, wanted to create an optic that shows this government is the Maduro, the Maduro government is not caring about people, that would be perfect. And why exactly is it that people are hungry? The line we're getting from the US right now is Maduro is starving his people. He's rejecting humanitarian aid. He doesn't care about his people's lives. But also recently, we had uh, Juan Guaido say that he supports sanctions, uh, the US sanctions that UN Rapporteur Alfred Desaias, who's the first UN Rapporteur to visit Venezuela in two decades, uh, said that the sanctions are tantamount to economic warfare comparable to medieval sieges of villages. Um, what, is, what is the truth here? Why are people hungry? 
first of all, I think Guido, I think it's for a blackmail. At this point, who knows what illusions he spins to himself about why he's doing what he's doing, but I think it's very clear he wants power. And I think he is willing to sacrifice people's standard of living and well-being in Venezuela in order to get power. So he, any, any responsible citizen, let alone somebody who claims the mantle of leadership in a country, could not possibly say, I support sanctions, because what you're saying basically is, I support the starvation or the hunger or the want of my own population. I think the, I, I mean, I think the major issue is oil prices have gone way down. Oh, I say under Chavez, Chavez had a lot of money to, to, um, operate with because oil prices were high. Oil prices have, have, have gone way down. That is, Venezuela is an oil, oil income, oil export, oil income dependent country. Obviously, if you have prices going down, the income will be a lot less. I, I'd say that's the major factor. And then the sac sanctions, boycotts, all those kind of things will only be the, the additional ones. And I'm sure there are people within the within the Maduro government who probably are making lots of mistakes. There were people in the Allende government who made mistakes too. I don't think we can. Ex I don't think the criteria for being um, a government is that you're perfect. I think you have to say if you support democracy, then you support who people elected. And if you support democracy, then you. Put your faith in the next elections. Maybe you do different things to get the political outcome you want, but you do not support an overthrow. You do not support a coup. And with all this disinformation out there and corporate capitalist support for the coup, what can our listeners do to make sure that they do understand what's happening and support democracy in Venezuela? I think there's tremendous pressure on um, our elected officials to toe the line, to go along with the idea that Maduro's a bad guy, Guaido's a good guy, we should get rid of Maduro, we should support Guaido. I think that what we have to, number one, is let every person who's in a position of elected power or a person who has a decision-making role in what happens in Venezuela, say, we want the U.S. to stop interference. It's not just about, it, it. all levels of interference, stop, just stop. This is not about being humanitarian. It's about um, overthrowing, getting rid of a democratically elected government. It just never turns out well. You could say Iran with overthrow of Mossadegh in 1953, Chile, Guatemala, Just you just name it. I think that we can, I think street protesting in the street is really great. Okay, I'm in Chicago. I'm not exactly dying to get out in the street, although the weather's a little better. I think talking to people, informing yourself, and then just make it a subject of conversation wherever you are. Say, hey, I actually have a different interpretation or I have different information. I don't see why people can't write letters to, letters to their newspaper or op-eds. I think we need to we need to sort of say, look, we do have power. And one way I'm going to use the power I have is to present a different, hopefully more accurate interpretation 
and vision of what's happening in Venezuela, number one, and number two, really, really help people understand why it's a problem if the United States intervenes yet again in another sovereign country. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and giving us context for what's happening in Venezuela right now. You're welcome. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics podcast and the brand new podcast joint series on Venezuela. Make sure to subscribe to both of the podcasts on iTunes. Check out our websites, brandnewcongress.org and millennialpolitics.co and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.